The following episode of Corrupted Nerds may contain strong language. Corrupted nerds ensconced in the twilight of their bedroom, whether it be in Paris, Singapore, Lagos, Bucharest, or indeed even Sydney. And from Sydney or somewhere nearby, welcome to Corrupted Nerds Conversations, episode 13. Today it's a slightly different format. It's a discussion about RuxCon, the recent information security conference held in Melbourne. But welcome, in fact, to series two of Corrupted Nerds, a podcast about information, power, security, and all the cybers in a global internet revolution that's changing everything. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. If you were a sponsor of Corrupted Nerds, your 30-second message would go here. Well, as I said, it's uh, a panel discussion. I should introduce myself first. I'm still Gerian. Also with me is Michael McKinnon, Social Media and Security Awareness Director for AVG Technologies AU. Hi, Michael. Hi, still Gerian. And Darren Polly, Security Reporter for The Register. Hi there, Darren. How you going still? I'm surviving after a RuxCon weekend. How about you guys? Yeah, surviving is uh, very much the word. Uh, the after party tends to take its toll on most uh, people who attend, but uh, in between that, of course, is some very interesting and informative material. Uh, that's true. Darren, how did you survive last yeah, weekend? Yeah, um, partially, really. Um, <laughs> particularly <laughs> Partial I think I survival, my... I like that. Yeah, I left my brain somewhere at the Carlton, I think, that night. So Yeah, I think a few people <laughs> did. Michael, across the weekend, RuxCon is very much your, your kind of more community, uh, hackery kind of conference than some of the more professional ones uh, that you and I have run into each other at recently. What was the standout presentation for you? Um, for me, I think um, one by Carl Denton, which was called Automated Malware Analysis, um, which is a pretty heavy kind of topic to, uh, to sit through on a, on a Saturday afternoon. But I think what, what I'm most impressed with uh, by a lot of the talks at RuxCon is that they're not, they're not vendor heavy. And in fact, I met Carl after he did his talk. And it's fascinating that this guy is a malware analysis hobbyist. Like, the, like he does malware anali- analysis on the weekends in his own time. And that just blows my mind that someone can have such a high degree of technical knowledge uh, to the level that he has, and, and he does this in his spare time. But so much of information security, this kind of malware analysis stuff, is done by, well, I don't want to say amateurs because they're, they're professional people and they're, they're earning money sometimes in things like bug bounties, but, but people doing it on the side of their day job. Absolutely. This, and this guy's a, a full-time like, system or network administrator. He's telling me you know, he's sort of bored with his full-time job, but you know, he, what excites him is doing the malware stuff. And um, you know, I think when you, when you see someone do a talk like that, and it's actually pure passion which is driving what they're talking about, I think you get so much more out of it. And of course, there's none of the sort of corporate vendor stuff that, that often gets overlaid into some of these presentations. So I think that for RuxCon, for me, is all about that. What about for you, Darren, the stand-up? Uh, can I pick a couple? Oh, for sure. <laughs> so so uh, one of them would have been one I actually didn't attend on account of it um, sort of being covered by the papers, but that was Chris Rock's Hack to Death. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so where he was able to um, use sort of manual antiqu- antiquated uh, processes, paper processes to... Uh, 
to declare someone uh, dead according to the state and also uh, uh, cre- create a new identity so 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 birth someone is the way that he that he kind of put it um so there was that and also at the start of I think it was day one um, Chris Yates uh, was was gave a talk on um, purple teaming which is a sort of a a combination between uh, red teaming and blue teaming, so offensive and defensive security, and how because uh, th- those those teams so how are... does that actually work? I mean, uh, red teaming is really pen- uh, penetration testing. Basically, you have a team pretending to be the attackers, the blue teams your side defending. Purple, how does this work? It's kind of like a bit of a lovey-dovey uh, relationship between the two, really. It's it's mainly centred on removing the antagonism between the two. So so Chris is from Facebook, and, and this is sort of the stuff that they, they're doing there. Um, but essentially, if you can imagine the red team guys find, you know, an exploit or, or, or vulnerabilities and stuff, and they want to do everything they possibly can to um to keep that away from the defenders you know and so they so it's 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 basically trying to build a bit of bridge between the two teams for the benefit of uh broader security really if that makes sense yeah. well i'm going to add in a vote certainly for chris rock's hacked to death presentation uh because apart from uh, being interesting to see how you subvert all of those paperwork processes it was pissingly funny <laughs> uh, i loved his idea that uh, if you, you know, have a kid, you are a legitimately a parent, just create a few more birth certificates while you're at it under different identities so that if your kid screws up and gets a criminal record or something, when they turn 18, you just kill that one off, you know, give them a new identity with a clean record. I, I mean, that was presented in a silly way, but in a sense, that could actually be a thing. Uh, and the mm. other one for me that that stood out was uh, Andy Davis's presentation, Broadcasting Your Attack, Security Testing, DAB Radio in Cars. These are the digital audio broadcast standard, that is, digital radios. And it turns out that, one, they're computers, two, they're connected to the network in the car most of the time, and three, like most embedded devices, their security testing and update procedures is rubbish. And he talked us through some scenarios in which you could set up a fake radio station and it could broadcast malware into your radio and infect your car because one of the packet types in the DAB standard is a Java app to run on the radio. You can transmit Java apps at digital radios. (laughs) Java in your car. It's excellent, isn't it, Michael? amazing concept. Yeah, mm. wonderful. So that was good. Anything that was particularly surprising for you guys? Uh, you know what? I um, Team Pangu, uh, they spoke on the second day, and they're, they're a, uh, a, Chinese, a, a Chinese team who are behind uh, a lot of the jailbreaks recently. They think they started sometime last year. So they, by they, jailbreaks, you mean something like... Uh, breaking an iPhone out of Apple's, uh, you know, standard walled garden environment to run non-approved stuff. Precisely, precisely. So, um, you know, they they stepped through their latest sort of work and um, and you know how how they did it was really highly technical. Um, and and it just uh, the, so anyway, um, but I went and had a chat to them afterwards about their motivations, right? Because. 
I mean, here's a team of, I think there was about six of them based up in, in, in Shanghai working for nothing to freely, like to discover exploits and then burn them. And by burn them, I mean release them publicly so then Apple can, in its next iOS release, fix it, right? But whereas, and, and they do this for free and for the benefit of security research because jailbreaking enables people to poke around iOS a lot better. Um, whereas... Other people that would find it could submit those bugs to, you know, an exploit broker or whatever and get thousands, you know, maybe a million bucks. And so I was saying why, what I really wanted to ask him and, and, and um, did was why, why do you hate money? You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> well, so, you kind of almost have to ask that of a lot of people working in information security because, you know, if you have certain skills, there's money to be made both white and black. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But these these guys were um, fantastic and, and they, they really sort of was... They run a little uh, mobile security startup company and, and they just... They said they love it, you know. They, they love iOS, but they think that um, people should have sort of a bit more control over devices. Um, yeah, so the, the actually the only thing I didn't write... I wrote an article on that, but the one thing I didn't include, which sort of... Um, was a kind of a cool thing was that they only look for exploits in uh, other in the, well they don't look for exploits in Safari because if they found them they would be much more valuable to black hats and so they don't want to endanger people which I thought was pretty cool like sort of but that's you know, weird in and of itself isn't it I mean you're deliberately not looking at vulnerabilities which would be really useful to know about. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, maybe if they've got X amount of time or whatever, but, um, you know, anyway, I, I just think like for, you know, I, th- I think it was, it's pretty cool for someone who's got, you know, s- who's so smart to be able to just dedicate that intelligence freely, you know, to, f- to, to just research. Indeed. Well, you're listening to Corrupted Nerds with uh, me, Stilgarian, Michael McKinnon and Darren Pauli. <laughs> And before we continue, uh, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, my trip to RuxCon was made possible through a possible uh, crowdfunding campaign with the extremely um, straightforward title of Send Stilgarian to RuxCon. So at this point, I would like to say a way special thank you to the way special supporters, Paul Davis, Paul Williams and Peter Sanderlins, who I think all three of those gentlemen are repeat offenders in terms of supporting me uh, in some sort of crowdfunding endeavour. So thank you to those way special supporters. I notice that their names all start with P. Uh, that's not compulsory. People whose names uh, start with other letters of the alphabet are also welcome to support my endeavours. Also, thank you to special supporters Gavin Costello and Michael Crowley. And thank you too to all of the other rather fine and, uh, you know, just fine supporters uh, listed on the website for those of you who are going to be getting postcards and ebooks and and things like that uh, you can look out for them within the next uh, couple of weeks so thank you all well Darren let's have a look at some of the the stories you and I have filed uh, from Ruxcon uh, you did a couple Windows 10 uh, which I, I thought had the rather nice headline mostly harmless. <laughs> yeah, it was um I I yeah, I was almost I was umming and ahhing about that story as a matter of fact because um so uh it was Google's Google Project Zero's James Forshaw who is a uh, Project Zero is a um a, a 
exploit, well, I suppose, a vulnerability testing uh, area of Google where they um, find vulnerability, vulnerabilities in uh, various software and then tell the vendors, you know, they've got, you know, what is it, 60 or 90 days or something like that to, mm. to fix it. So, and he's really prolific, very, very smart guy. Um, and so, yeah, he, I was kind of arming and arming whether it would even really be news because he kind of said, well, Windows is better than it was, but it's, uh, you know, it could be better. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, I don't know. Um, but turns out, you know, it was, it was the top story for, I don't know, a week and a half on the reg. I look, I think everyone likes to look at, you know, is Windows as crap as it used to be? thing mm. um and i you know having been looking at this for as long as i have there's still that impression you know i mean 20 years ago you referred to windows machines as the targets mm. um and and back in the year 2000 2001 of course every worm on the planet uh was just infecting windows machines but microsoft steadily worked on that and you know it's nice Absolutely. i think to be reassured that everything's going well how did how did you kind of look at this michael yeah, so the this talk about Windows 10 was really interesting, um, and it actually reminded me of one of a talk that I saw back at Breakpoint in 2012, uh, which was I think Alex Ionescu who did a breakdown of Windows 8 at the time, and he looked at all of the sort of extra security features that that Microsoft had put into Windows 8, and so I sort of drew similarities with that because I think as a new operating system comes out, particularly Windows, because we know it's such a, a huge targeted operating system, is people want to know what's actually going on under the hood, if you like and what are the kind of exposure points that we need to be aware of. And, of course, from the Windows 8 days, Microsoft put, you know, an enormous amount of engineering into improving the security, you know, in that version of Windows. And then, you know, presumably they've done, you know, even more in Windows 10. And we've sort of seen glimpses of that. And, of course, there's this talk about the, you know, larger attack surface and the fact that the operating system is becoming, you know, more complex and it's sprawling out. And, of course, all of those Mm. things are absolutely true. And they're true because we are demanding more from our operating system these days. So we're kind of going down this inevitable path of, of, of that anyway. Um, but I think, yeah, people are definitely interested to see what's, what's there. And, and, you know, it'd be fascinating just to see how Windows 10 develops and what Microsoft are then working on, uh, you know, for the next versions as well. Oh, I was going to say, um, he, he, he he very much said that. So the, the, I think the essence of that talk was, yes, you know, there's more drivers, there's more uh, services. I, I, I think 50 had been added in each bucket since uh, Windows 8 um, or so, but they had done other things, other um, uh, sort of privilege hardening measures to make it a bit better. But the one thing that he really, he called it his ultimate bugbear was um user account control the little uh, stupid yes. right and 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 it, he said uh it appeared to have been downgraded from a security technology to something you just put there to annoy the user yeah <laughs> i i mean uh, yeah see that's what that's always the problem isn't it that everything that you kind of do to control access is going to start getting in the way in some way, even if it's automated, even if it's mm. smart. And mm. if you try and make it too smart, well, then you create another attack surface. Mm. And we all know that software would be so much better without users. Oh, I was going to say that, Michael. <laughs> but yes, I think, I think we are all in agreement pretty much on that. Yeah. Uh, your other story, Darren, was the jailbreaking one. You've mentioned a, a little bit of that already. Uh, anything further to add? Um, not so much, really. I mean, um, they... 
No, there was. I mean, they they mentioned, I suppose, in terms of the split, there was a core team of uh, of I think uh, four developers, um, and they all. One guy was like working in the kernel space. Another guy's working on a in a different area, and um, you know they they kind of just work out of the apartments and 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 get together. Um, I asked them if they ever meet face to face. You know, like do you get do you go sit in a cafe and have a coffee and talk about it? And he just sort of looked at me blankly, like so that's not happening, I suppose. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Everything happens online, right? Yeah, yeah. That so, actually no. brings up a an interesting point about the culture of this. I mean, are you observing a different culture there? Because I mean, surely even here in the West and here in Australia, the uh, the younger hackers, and I'm thinking these guys were at the younger end of the spectrum. Mm. Um, you know, it's not really a physical catch up thing, is it? No, not really. Um, and I suppose I haven't been to to try and roll but uh, there, there seems to be you know I, I don't know I hear a lot about sort of you know this is kind of a bit of a culture where people might stay inside and work on their computers and play games and stuff like that so I mean it wasn't at all unsurprising particularly for this I mean if what you're doing is you know entirely in the tech space I suppose there's really no need to to sit around a table or whatever but um yeah I don't know you know uh, but it, it was pretty cool they they have a lot of respect for Apple as well I thought they may have thought like there may have been a bit of a middle finger response to to Cupertino, but um, oh yeah, the no. old uh, "How dare you lock off your devices, Apple will show you" kind of thing. Right? Yeah, um, I didn't ask them, uh, although I suppose I should have. Um, their first jailbreak, uh, you may be familiar with this, um, Stefanessa, uh, a um, an iOS or an Apple researcher, really um, great iOS researcher, had a um, private training. Um, a thing at a conference, right? So you had to pay X amount of money and he would walk you through whatever it was he was doing with Apple. And in that, he uh, disclosed a vulnerability that he had found. Um, those One of the guys from team pa- uh, from Pangu team was there, then used that uh, vulnerability to develop the next exploit, uh, the, the next uh, jailbreak. And that burnt his, his uh, S's... Uh, bug that he found right it was no longer because apple fixed it and he was pissed like he was like (laughs) i didn't authorize this i you know what the hell's going on and there was this big thing and like you know i was kind of hoping he'd be at ruxcon to see what would happen you just wanted to see a punch up darren yeah but um no that were they were cool like these guys kind of went oh shit you know we we sort of thought it was public and they they offered him uh, a bug in kind um and then it kind of like i don't know sort of drifted off but that that was an interesting sort of glimpse into the world of uh, jailbreaking uh, and stuff well for my part i wrote uh, a piece for zdnet on the words of paul vixie dr paul vixie who was one of the really the creators of the internet's domain name system dns and although it in one way what he said wasn't particularly new in the sense that he was saying, you know, DNS was important and we've got to secure it and so on. It was the way in which he said stuff because we've recently had, or recently over the last year or so, the opening up of the top level of the internet's domain name structure, which used to be, you know, .com, .net and so on, and also one for each country, .au for Australia, .it for Italy, etc., to it's something like 1,900 new top-level domains. There's everything from .dog, uh, .cool, .porn, .club, um, just a huge number of them. And 
Paul Vixie basically said straight up that this was nothing more than a money grab and a mistake, that uh, ICANN, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, which administers the domain name infrastructure and also assigns IP addresses, his view is that they're meant to be a regulator. But as a regulator, they've been captured by the industry they're meant to be regulating. He says there was no end-user demand for all of these new domains. It was really just something that the registrars wanted so that they would have more stuff to sell. You know, a, a money grab. And, uh, you know, that seems to be working because having sold uh, the rights to issue 1,900 different domains, and yes, .sex is in there as well, I think .cow... And dot fish, um, you know, <laughs> okay. at one hundred and eighty-five thousand dollars each for the application fee. That's more than three hundred million dollars into ICANN. That sounds like a, a money grab, Michael. What did you make of this? Yeah, look, I tend to agree. The thing I like about Paul Vixie when he talks, of course, is he's a technical guy. And so he doesn't mince his words. Everything he says is straight and to the point. And it all comes back to the very traditional foundational aspect of, of you know, how the internet was created and particularly with DNS. And of course, the thing that a lot of us old schoolers appreciate about DNS is that the fact that it's hierarchical, the fact that there is a structure to it. And of course, this these new uh, top-level domains kind of break what we've all known for so many decades in terms of how that structure exists. And uh, so, you know, I tend to agree with him on, you know, on that point. Uh, well, he was pretty blunt. I mean, he said, quote, there should be no price at which you can buy .microsoft, but there is, and that's a mistake that indicates corruption as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> wow. Yes, wow. well, he certainly, he certainly <laughs> didn't mince it that way, did he? <laughs> Look, yeah. he's, he's got a point, but I don't know. Darren, I'm going to ask for your opinion before I, I give mine. Okay. I Well, yeah, okay. I think it's pretty clearly a money grab, but is that a problem? Like, is there... Is there, is there you don't like, have like to if, buy if, it. If, I see what you mean. Free market economy, if people want yeah. to pay $185,000, well, good on totally. them. Totally. And yeah. if they can make money out of that, good on them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I mean, <laughs> well, is it going to... I think, I think you're right. I mean, it does have the potential to create confusion. There is... The issue that you uh, can make malware look more convincing or spam look more convincing if it, appear, if it appears to come from a, a genuine domain. And when mm. genuine domains can suddenly look like anything and be created and destroyed within minutes, right. that... Dot Microsoft that, or something, yeah. Well, yeah, dot Microsoft. I mean, someone else might buy that. I I kind of... Don't know that that I care that much anymore. I'm un- I used to really get annoyed when companies, you know, would get a .net rather than a .com because, hey, are, are you an internet company? Are you delivering uh, internet infrastructure? I actually heard the other day someone back in these good old days of 20 years ago, his workplace actually banned them from accessing the Australian Broadcasting Corporation website, the ABC's website, because it was abc.net.au, and he said the ABC isn't a network <laughs> infrastructure kidding? company, so you're not allowed to go <laughs> oh to their website. <laughs> wow, that stretches right back to the old connect.com.au days, where that was uh, that was the organisation responsible for .net.au, and that was, that was right. It used to be for network infrastructure providers only. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> so uh, we have moved on beyond that, uh, but I but I did find uh, Paul Vixie's impassioned 
arguments, um, a real eye-opener to uh, you know, just where this old-school thought comes from. It's not just bloody-mindedness. He had reasons for it. And I should also yeah. mention for the, the more technical people uh, listening, he did say that if you run domain name servers, then you really should be implementing a few things immediately, such as DNSSEC, the domain name system security extensions, although uh, he did say that that would uh, cause your pager to go off more because most people aren't actually doing it. And if someone stuffs it up, you'll, you'll hear about it. He said, quote, it'll be fun. You should try it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but also DNS response rate limiting, DNS RRL. That's basically to help stop domain name servers being used for denial of service attacks because if you suddenly have millions of requests for information on the one domain name, you can be pretty damn sure it's not legitimate. So, you know, block that. And uh, a thing called response policy zones, I'll leave you to look that up for yourselves because it's difficult to explain in audio. You need a diagram. DNS, RPZ, but uh, that's some of the newer technologies uh, that are helping to make DNS uh, safer and more secure. What else should I mention at this point before um, I uh, go on? There's one other, sorry, there's one other talk, but I, I had written it up as a hack in the box article, but it was... What's re, a know, hack in the box article? Okay, a hack in the box is a, is a conference that has, that runs in Asia, Singapore, Malaysia. Um, I think it's been going for about, ooh, I could be wrong here, but it's almost 20 years. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, oh, yeah I've, I've, I've heard of that just, and know all about it. I just temporarily forgot. I'm just stopping for a sec. My dogs are barking. I've just got to shut them up. The desk sleeping. They should be. Yes. Oh shit! <laughs> Actually, if they're out there, can you hear? Can you hear? Yeah, that? it's a, it's okay. It doesn't matter if we have got dogs. Oh, okay, they're out the front going nuts, but that's that's fine. I don't care. Do you want to give me twenty seconds and I'll I'll, I'll bring them in? So okay, go, I'll be back in twenty seconds. The only other thing still was about with Paul Vixie was that he took he mentioned briefly uh, a thing called Dane Project. Oh, yeah, From yeah, ISOC. yeah, 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 yeah. And that's yeah. actually really interesting because that's using DNS to verify the authenticity of SSL certs and also uh, SSH keys and things like this, which is, uh, which, is, which is really quite interesting. It's actually an alternative to what Google are, are, are putting forward with certificate transparency, which is a different way of doing the same thing. This whole thing about uh, authenticating SSL certificates so you know that the website that you're connecting to securely is actually uh, the right place. As Vixie pointed out, we have no idea. Uh, do you know that you've, you've got an encrypted session? Yes. Do you know that it's actually to your bank as opposed to someone in the middle? Um, not so much. He said... There are 2,000 or so companies out there who can create keys that all of our browsers will then believe, uh, and we have no goddamn idea who these 2,000 companies are, except that we know at least half of them are shell companies owned by nation states so that they can create when they need them a key that matches their victim. In other words, the spooks can just intercept all this stuff and you still think you're connected to your bank or your oil company or your spook headquarters or whatever it might be. So that's the Dane project, which kind of links these certificates uh, into um, into uh, DNS. An interesting thing. But back to Hack in the Box. Yeah, so um, Hack in the Box is has been running for about 20 years. Um, it's based now, I believe, in Singapore, but it was in Malaysia. 
um, and it's a pretty technical conference generally. Um, goes for like three days, and a guy by the name of Lyong Yang, if that's that's as good as I'm going to get to pronouncing his name, um, gave a talk called "Advanced Soho Router Exploitation." Um, and I have a real, like, r- Soho routers are a bit of a thing that kind of pissed me off a little bit, you know, because uh, they're yeah, just, yeah. yeah, universally <laughs> bad. I wrote this whole free tour, I just got really angry and... Well, was- <laughs> what makes you angry about them, Darren? I mean, they're crap, generally, but more specifically... Well, I think the vendors don't give a shit, to be honest. Um, I think there's a game changer now with Google and that little thing that looks like a coffee cup, whatever they've called. They've got this router coming out. Um, for a couple of hundred bucks, which is pretty, makes it kind of within that space. But it has automatic updating. Um, it's, you know, all the things that you would expect from like, I don't know, like a... From a, a modern device in the year 2015, right. yeah. Totally, yeah. Like like Android, you know, there's the, there's something like that. So nice and slick, very Googleish, security focused. But, you know, if you, like, so my router and every other bloody router on the market just about, like in this space, is manual firmware updating, right? And so you've got to think... This, for the general user, and everyone's got one in the house, they don't know how to access it, right? They, they usually run the default key. They're not going to change it. So if it's admin, admin, no one's going to change that. No one will go to check the site to see if there's a firmware update and then apply it. Like, are you kidding, right? So all this, all this stuff's terrible. Above that... Every, I, I mean, I haven't. There's, there's now a competition called so, so hopelessly broken, and it's, <laughs> it's brilliant, right? Uh, oh, that's, that's choice. It's great, and they, all these guys get together and just own the shit out of routers, and then I don't know, like they have a bit of a party or whatever. So, and, and that's really great. But then they go and tell like D Link and, and TP Link and whoever, whoever else are these names, and most of them, and I, I think maybe D Link is trying a little bit, and there's always like a couple of people in an organisation that care, but it's normally everyone else doesn't, right? So there's a few people like that, but most of the time it just never gets fixed. And so this guy um, Lion. Um, uh, there were a line of routers called Zone, Z-H-O-N-E, um, and they're sold to, like, enterprises use them and stuff like that, but it's mandated for use by a, an unnamed but probably incumbent, I don't know, Singapore telco. So if you want to be their customer, a subscriber, you have to use this router. You have no choice. And you can't swap it out. You can, like, put, a, you can put it into bridge mode and stick your own there if you want to really stuff fuck around with it, but... But it has hard-coded, like, credentials. It has, like, it's riddled with O'Day, remotely ownable. It's just absolutely terrible, like every other bloody Soho router out there. Um, and so he walked through these. And the, and the disclosure, like, he disclosed it. I might be wrong here, but I think, like, 18 months, even even longer, like, 24 months. And it just, so just everything about router security sucks. The engagement with the researchers suck. Um, sometimes they try to sue the researchers to stop them doing this stuff. In fact, they I think they did. Someone he got a bit of strife for this. It's terrible. So I think when this when Google's thing drops, hopefully everyone buys it, and then it just that will create a bit of a security standard. Hopefully, hopefully, because mm-hmm. I think that that's. You know, it's the it's such a critical point. Um, you know, if you and and then you use Shodan or something like that, and you can just pull them. Up. I mean, it's stupid. You, you every story that you write about it talks about 
tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of routers, you know. it's So, yeah, anyway, there you go. There's my rant, so you can tell. No, I, I think that's a, a fantastic rant. I, Michael, you yeah. agree oh, with most of that I too. absolutely agree. In fact, at AVG, we see swathes of people being infected by malware that originates from their DNS being infiltrated through their their home router because the home router's been hacked into and some crook has actually, or, you know, often it's a script that changes the DNS the primary and secondary DNS resolution settings to be DNS servers that are serving up, you know, fake pages from criminal you know, co- DNS, common, basically, common, yeah. yeah, comment from common websites that we visit, and and that is the number one reason why I would like to see Soho routers, you know, really locked down so that that DNS chain can be secured and we stop seeing this happening. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, have links to uh, the things we've been talking about there on the podcast website as well as, uh, well, really to uh, the presentations and other stuff there. Uh, we'll come back to these issues, but first uh, I want to talk a bit about electronic voting. Dr Vanessa Teague is a cryptographer at the University of Melbourne and I must admit I'm a bit of a fan. She studies the cryptographic protocols that are used by electronic voting systems and two years ago she did a presentation at RuxCon which blew holes in the idea that any currently available electronic voting system can do a better job than humans with pencil and paper. There isn't a secure solution for voting over the internet. There isn't a good way of authenticating voters, that is making sure that the person at the other end of the connection is the eligible voter they say they are. There isn't an easy, usable way of helping voters to make sure that the vote they send is the vote they wanted, even if their PC is infected with malware or administered by somebody who wants to vote differently. And although there are some techniques for providing evidence that encrypted votes have been properly decrypted and tallied, it's hard to scale those techniques to large Australian elections. Well, this year at RuxCon, Vanessa Teague spoke about the current state-of-the-art with electronic voting, mostly in connection with the New South Wales system, which is called iVote. Vanessa Teague, when we last spoke, which was two years ago now on this podcast, uh, you really didn't have a lot of happy things to say about the state of electronic voting. Has anything changed? Not really. Uh, If anything, we've had some specific examples that back up the argument that I was making about the importance of transparency and the importance of making sure that the system really does guarantee that people can verify that it gets the right answer. We've seen, so, we've seen an example in New South Wales of a, an internet voting system for which Alex Haldeman and I discovered a significant security problem, which really emphasises the importance of needing a protocol that really does actually allow people to verify that the right votes went in on their behalf and allows scrutineers and observers to verify that the right back-end processing happened. Now, this was the New South Wales iVote system. What actually was wrong? Um, so the specific security problem that Alex Haldeman and I identified was uh, uh, the result of pulling in some JavaScript from a third-party server that was vulnerable to an interception attack called the Freak Attack. Which would have, and we showed using the practice server that it was possible for us to uh, expose how a person intended to practice vote to change their vote, 
uh, and to send a different vote into the main server. We also showed that it was possible to interfere with the receipt number that was returned by the system. And if the person had been using that to access the real voting system, then that would have prevented them from logging into the verification service at all. Now, obviously, we didn't try it out on the real server, although the real server was running at the time, but we did check that the same vulnerability was present. Now, the rest of the argument centers around trying to understand, given that that vulnerability was present for about five days of polling during the state election, how do we understand whether or not uh, a malicious attacker might have taken advantage of that? Now, what we'd really ideally like to have is a genuinely verifiable electoral system. Back in 2013, I explained that there were some significant shortcomings in the verification protocol associated with iVote. Now what I'd like to understand is what actually came out of the verification process during the 2015 state election run. So the way that it worked was that uh, after you'd cast an iVote, your browser was supposed to return to you a receipt number. And then as a voter, you were able to use that receipt number along with your other credentials, to log into a telephone-based verification server, which was hosted by a third party outside the New South Wales Electoral Commission and, and outside of the software vendor, Cytal. You were supposed to log in, give them your receipt number, and they were supposed to read your vote back to you. Now, we hear from the uh, New South Wales Electoral Commission that about 1.7% of people verified and that nobody lodged a complaint on the grounds that their vote didn't match what they expected. Now that sounds great, okay, that's really good. But that's really only half of the question. The other half of the question is how many people tried to verify but were unable to log in? Because what we're trying to use that verification mechanism for is to try and get an estimate of the fraction of people who might have experienced some kind of a problem associated with the voting process. So to get my head around that, like all these questions, you almost need to ask the question backwards as well, don't you? So it's not just how yes, many people exactly. got it right, but how many people yes. got it wrong. Yeah. Right, exactly. And how many people tried it but couldn't get it to work at all. Exactly. So if we're trying to make, if we're trying to use that as an estimate of how many people might have experienced a problem, whether just a software bug or a deliberate attempt at manipulating their vote as a result of a security problem, or maybe they just messed it up themselves, we're trying to use the verification system to get an estimate of how many of the whole 280,000 votes might have experienced a problem. We need both sides of the equation. We need the number who succeeded, but we also need the rate of people who failed. Which we don't have, I guess, is the answer to your question. Correct, which we don't seem to have at the moment. Now, the other thing that we don't have is the report from the... Uh, independent consultants, uh, I believe, PwC and a few other parties, who were supposed to check that the votes on the verification service went properly into the count. And again, two years ago, we talked about that kind of back-end scrutineering process. And I said at the time that that's a huge departure from our usual tradition of letting candidate-appointed scrutineers watch a paper-based um, vote counting process, right? Traditionally what we do is we stand the scrutineers in the room and we let them watch the electoral officials count the paper votes. And if they don't, if they see something about the process that they object to or if there are aspects of the situation that don't give them confidence that the right process is being followed, then they're allowed to 
um, raise a flag. Well, this really is the whole problem with electronic voting that I see. It means that the the number of people who can be scrutineers and watch what's going on suddenly isn't anyone with halfway decent eyesight and an ability to count, but is now down to a very narrow field of cryptographers and the like. Well, I mean, I, I agree completely, but actually I think in this case it's even worse than that. It's not that anybody with appropriate cryptography background was able to watch this process. It was that a very small number of specifically chosen um, scrutineers, not, not scrutineers, sorry, a very small number of specifically chosen consultants and individuals were given the data. The data was not made available to anybody else. So scrutineers were allowed to sit in the audience and watch the computer screens, but that is not the same as actually getting an opportunity <laughs> to check the data. Oh, dear. As any hacker will soon tell you, we can make a computer screen show pretty much whatever we like. Exactly. Furthermore, what we so I, I think there are in principle issues with that process in the first place, as you identify. Furthermore, in practice, it's now seven months after the election, we don't know what's in those reports. So, on the one hand, we trusted a very small number of people to substitute for the scrutineers during this process. Seven months after the election, we don't know what they have to say. Hmm. Uh, the PwC's report is not available. There's no independent statement from the verification service. As far as I'm aware, nobody who was part of this process has been able to tell us what they looked for, what they found, whether there were any issues, and so forth. Well, without spending much more time on the, the New South Wales system, because uh, we, we could be here all day by the sound of it, listing the potential problems with it. In, in summary, electronic voting, where are we up to? Uh, sensible, verifiable solutions in the polling place, either a voter verifiable record or a genuinely end-to-end -end verifiable system like the Victorian system. Nobody knows how to do this securely over the internet in a verifiable and privacy-preserving way. Right. More broadly, looking at uh, the Ruxcon conference itself over a couple of days, what were the things that stood out for you? What are the, the big themes, do you think? I think that our society has to make a lot of really important decisions in the near future about secure storage of metadata, whether we put our uh, passports up on the cloud, whether we vote online. All of these kinds of decisions depend on a really clear understanding of whether the underlying technology is secure or how to make it secure or exactly what the threats against us are going to be. And I think all of those decisions really need to be informed by accurate technical analysis of the proposed solutions. And after we really understand the technology, then we can start making the political decisions, but they have to be grounded in fact about what the tech can or cannot do. That's an excellent thought. Vanessa Teague, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Bill. Good to talk to you. You're listening to Corrupted Nerds. Back to our panel discussion with Michael McKinnon and Darren Pauli. Uh, gentlemen, of all of the cyber threats that we keep hearing about lately, and there's been you know a lot in the news, which are the ones uh, do you think that we should really be paying attention to and which are the ones that are well, really, not to put too fine a word, too fine a point on it, absolutely overhyped? 
Wow. Okay. So I've got a huge list here, but I don't know where to begin. But um, we'll start uh, at the top, work your way down through <laughs> so the list till you get, get to the look, bottom. I guess one of the things that Ruxcon kind of exposed for me this year, and in fact, it's a trend that's been happening over the last few years, is just the level of hardware hacking that we're starting to see at an amateur level. You know, there's the whole sort of collision of hacking, you know, from a software point of view, more traditional point of view, and there's also the sort of maker community, 3D printing, Arduino, you know, all this other stuff that's sort of coming in. And I think that it's really impressive to see the level of hardware hacking that's happening. And of course, this is also sort of heading down the freeway, driving alongside the Internet of Things. And we're all sort of, you know, converging on some really interesting point in the future. And I think that as the Internet of Things becomes more of a, a realistic threat against all of us because of these new manufacturers that are entering this space... Uh, it's going to be something that we definitely need to pay more attention to. And we really need to, I think, get the message out to all of those companies and industry that are creating these new gadgets that are now plugging into the network. You know, get your act together. Just actually test this stuff and get security people on board so that you're not just providing all of these points of weakness because it's just going to get worse. So we just It is going to amplify beyond measure over the next few years. Um, there is no question in my mind that that's the case. Um, some of the other things that I sort of observe out there are, you know, just compromise, you know, compromise after compromise after compromise of data that happen out of, out of organisations. And, um, you know, there's this term we use called low-hanging fruit. You know, we, we, we imply that these companies aren't doing enough to protect the, the, the simple things they should be doing. But the embarrassing thing when you look at so many of these compromises, we're not even talking about low-hanging fruit. We're talking about fruit that's laying on the ground ready for, <laughs> for people just to pick up. Um, and I think that, that, you know, there needs to be a lot more effort in terms of how we protect that. Um, and, and the list goes on, but I, I won't bore you with the rest of it. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm agreeing with every single word of that, except I, I wouldn't have said, get your act together. I would have used a slightly stronger word in that context. <laughs> uh, Darren? Yeah, um, I suppose, well, yeah, I, I agree with uh, what Mike said. You know, of, of course, that's all, that's that, that's fabulous, um, good, good, good best practice and stuff like that uh, we need to do. Uh, but um, I think... Probably the most realistic, the most pressing threat. I mean, there's so many, but I think I think um, malvertising and the the lack of um, any scrutiny and 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 um, uh, respect for security within the advertising online advertising models is a pretty pressing one. Now, um, if, if I can clarify that by by malvertising, okay, the word obviously means malicious advertising, but this I assume comes back to the fact that major media websites even. Are including in their web pages advertising that's pulled in from other people's servers, from the ad companies and so on. And that part of the industry doesn't take as much care. So you think you're visiting a legitimate and safe major news website, but the page is full of all of this other crap that's coming from only the gods know where. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, as, as, as media people, right, we, we require advertising, you know, advertising sort of oils, uh, greases the wheels of, of free news, <laughs> yes, right? exactly. So, but I was, you know, I was struggling not to tell, I, I, so I wrote something on this, a, a feature article a while ago, but I was struggling to not tell people to use ad blockers. Because the not, I mean, these the sites and, and of course, it doesn't really matter like how big the site is; they all fall the same, right? If you have Google News on, like Google Ads on your site, 
you know, Google Ads gets popped all the time. So, so if you run a script blocker or an ad blocker, that's kind of the a a, a um, reasonable response to the malvertising threat. It really is. Um, and so I see that as a really bad thing. And and where it needs to kind of change is all the way down the chain. It get you get into this real time bidding scenario where it's just sort of this crazy world where um, inventory is bought and sold in in you know just a heartbeat by algorithms and stuff like that. And because it's so fast and I guess profit margins are so slim, um, there aren't any vetting. There's no vetting of who's buying the inventory. So someone will buy an ad and then that ad may uh, contain malicious code or it may the malicious code may be added later. Mm. Um, and so there's only there's a couple of people doing this and they're, own, they're owning so many. So mm. anyway, I think that that's a big one that, that the big ad networks need to um, address in terms of silver bullet stuff uh, not silver bullet like hype oh cyber war I still think it's kind of bullshit really I you, mean, you're on the cyber war will not happen side well, of that Darren, obviously I mean, I, I mean it is it is happening as in um, well espionage networks. is happening sabotage it, is happening sabotage is happening I think that it's 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 a part of warfare as much as anything else, but I think um, I think we need to be careful about um, how much we beat the war drums in terms of traffic lights being shut off and all the sort of um, the, the, the real dramatic end of things because that that sort of feeds the military industrial complex and you know uh, mm. I don't know there's something about me I, I just I just think we need to focus on the things that really 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 matter and that's that everyone's getting hosed. So <laughs> <laughs> it does come back to that message. Gentlemen, we could be here for hours, I can tell. Uh, and given that this was the first ever time we've, we've done a panel discussion kind of thing on the Corrupted Nerds podcast, uh, it has, of course, raised a billion topics, which we'll, uh, with luck, be able to explore in future episodes. But for now, it's thank you to you both. Thank you, Michael McKinnon. What's happening in your world? Uh, much of the same. We're from a consumer uh, side of view. We're just continuing with our social, uh, sorry, our security awareness work through social media, YouTube videos, these sorts of things. And on the business side, certainly focusing on the Internet of Things dilemma, uh, giving businesses solutions to sort of remotely administer and manage uh, all of their stuff. Michael McKinnon is, of course, from AVG Technologies AU. And from the registered, Darren Paul, I thank you very much as well. And I guess uh, it's just more of the same from you. Yeah, blood and guts and cynicism. That's me. (laughs) Thanks, guys. (laughs) And uh, we may have you back another time. Thanks very much, still. Thank you. Well, that's it for Corrupted Nerds Series 2, Episode 1. That's Episode 13 overall, if you've been keeping count. I plan to keep the main focus of this podcast on the long-form interviews that we've had in the past, but um, what did you think of this format? Is it worth doing more? Let me know over at the website, corruptednerds.com. That's where you'll uh, also find all the other things you need to know about what we're doing here. Coming up very soon, a very special interview with a senior officer of the Australian Signals Directorate. That's Australia's equivalent and uh, partner organisation to America's NSA. Joe Franzi heads up the ASD's cyber defence team at the Australian Cyber Security Centre. He's got some interesting things to say about risk management. You'll be able to hear that in the next couple of weeks. Haven't set the date yet. 
But until then, I'm Stilgarian. Have a good one. Corrupted Nerds is a Skank Media production. Sorry.